It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror. Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. I've never seen so much hatred in the eyes of my fellow human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism, we've overcome segregation, and we're going to overcome this. And I think we are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech. Mike Signer, the former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for joining Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore together how democracy can overcome extremism in a challenging new era. We are sitting down with folks who have dealt with extremism firsthand. Mayors, prosecutors, faith leaders, activists, journalists. Together, their stories provide important clues to how democracy can and must rise to this challenge. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's get started. Vegas Tainold is a journalist with an unusual focus. He covers extremists, but he does this in an unusual way. He embeds with them. He spends months at a time at their elbows. He gets to know them, how they tick, in real time. He was in Charlottesville with the forces who invaded the city, and he has powerful insights into the mechanisms bringing these violent people together and that help them commit acts that many ordinary people would find just unthinkable. You were in Norway when Anders Breivik killed 69 people at a summer camp in 2011, most of them children. How did this horrific event influence your decision to investigate the far right in America? So, so I think to my shame and to everyone else's, you know, society shame, when the blast went off first, because he set off a homemade bomb, much like uh, McVeigh's bomb at the government building, and he killed a good few people there as well. So when the blast went off, you could feel it in town, right? And you think immediately, oh, this is going to be bad for our Muslim community, because there's something about the way we think about terrorism that somehow makes us think about radical Islamism. Did you think that right at the moment? Right at the moment, that? I thought, it's come, it's come here. But as soon as it became clear who he was and what he believed, I think it opened my eyes and a lot of other people's eyes to the inherent dangers of far-right ideology. We hadn't had a Oklahoma City bombing or anything like that in Norway. So this was really a wake-up call. So I decided for my own curiosity to use the sources I'd already developed to go back to America after a while and to really dig into to this movement and to this ideology and try to find out why people would subscribe to this, what, where the rage came from, and how much of a risk it posed to us. How did you come to want to, to be able to do this kind of journalism? 
where you're embedding yourself with dangerous people, you're pursuing stories about violence. So I was always drawn to weird fringe cultures and movements because you just go there and see what they're about. And it's very, it's personal. It's physical. You, you spend time with people whose ideas and opinions are out of the norm. So that was always interesting to me. And, you know, I didn't just do far-right extremism. I spent a while living with the Westboro Baptist Church. When I asked Vegas about what these groups had in common, he said something that really surprised me. And I think it's an insight that can only come from spending real time in these people's living rooms. It helps explain why they stick together even when society is so horrified and terrified by what they're doing. I think community is a huge part of it. The groups of extremists that I've been spending time with here in America of, of various sorts, it, it comes down to community, right? And we all want to belong somewhere. We all want to feel like we contribute, that we have a role to play. So these groups provide that. You know, if you're feeling left out in any way or if you're feeling like you have no power in your life, that's what you seek out. You're seeking out these groups and say, no, you belong with us. You have a part to play. In terms of the far right, it's maybe you didn't know this, but the white race is in an existential battle for its survival. And you, my friend, have a part to play in this. And that's extremely, extremely powerful. So I imagine you get asked a lot in the quest to understand and tell the story and, and be in the community, how do you avoid the danger of normalizing? How have you addressed or reckoned with this question? I think it's something you need to be aware of at all times. I think I've, if not failed outright, I think I've come close to failing. And I talk about it a little bit in my book. The main character in my book, Matthew Heimbach, who was one of the organizers of the Unite the Right, I spent a ton of time with this guy. He's, you know, on the surface, a different kind of white nationalist. He's well-spoken. He's funny. He's friendly. And after a while, I realized that maybe I neglected my duties as a journalist a little bit because we found ourselves talking about all kinds of other stuff, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Because, you know, when you spend your time with skinheads or with the Klan, you hear so much awful stuff. Matthew didn't talk that way, so you didn't have to cringe your way through a conversation with him. So I think after a while, he became comfortable island in a sea of just like virulently racist, awful people. So there's a part of the book where I realize that he asks me, like Vegas, why haven't you asked me about the Holocaust? And it really takes me aback because I realize that maybe I haven't asked him about the Holocaust because I found this comfortable interaction and maybe I don't wow. want to rock the boat. And of course, I asked him about the Holocaust and he told me all the revisionist garbage that I'd been expecting. But when we talk about normalizing, you need to you need to remain critical. You need to know what you're doing. And I don't think it's a bad thing to describe the normal aspects of these people's lives because people out there need to know that not all Nazis have swastikas tattooed on their faces or wear clan robes. If you're going to show the normal part, you need to show the abnormal part. If you're going to show the human part, you need to show the inhuman part of their politics. And I think it's tempting for us to see Nazis as monsters because it allows us to think... Well, they're not us. So you can normalize them, but you have to make sure that you don't normalize their politics or, or what they believe. So you got to do both. In other words, it is possible to have these two thoughts in your head, that there can be radicalized, dangerous, potential terrorists in our midst, kind of participating in normal society and understand them in normal society, but also be 
resolved to addressing the violence that they could do. Yeah. And I think there's a fundamental optimism in that, you know, because Mm. I have to believe that these people can come back. We can change their minds, maybe not all of them, but, you know, turn around. And I I think as a society, we need to be able to send that message that you can come back to us. Your politics are monstrous and your ideas are monstrous. But if you're willing to renounce them, then we're willing to, to have you come back to us. And I think that's important. I then wanted to ask him something you you might want to. Honestly, what is it like spending time with such violent, hateful people? You know, I'd be afraid to turn my back on them. What's it like being in the in the belly of that beast? I wanted to ask him, were there moments when you thought you might be physically hurt? Yeah, there's been a few. Some of them are extraordinarily violent people. I spent time with a group called the Hammerskin Nation, uh, which is what you think about when you think about skinheads. They're the sort of the prison skinhead, massive muscles tattooed up. I once saw them beat up one of their own until his eye fell out of his socket and his jaw broke. And it was just awful. Um, Oh, my God. Can you tell us the story, the, the pizza story? Well, this was the night of the Tiki Torch March, right? I had just arrived in Charlottesville with my friend Glenna Gordon, who's this brilliant photographer who was starting a photography project on the women of the far right. And I'd spoken to Matthew Heimbach, and we were invited out to the house they had rented on the outskirts of town. And when we got there, Matthew wasn't there, and there was a really ugly mood. I think because there were all these groups together. They'd all been drinking. They were just like, they knew something was going to happen tomorrow. So there was, a, there was a mood that I hadn't really seen. And as soon as Glenna came in, the dynamic changed even further. There was a rumor that she was Jewish. I don't know where she, they had that from. But as soon as we got there, one of the minions of Matthew Heimbach decided to sort of, there was a litmus test that she had to go through. So he ran off and scurried back with a bacon pizza, slice Uh, of bacon pizza, because apparently he believes that if a Jew eats bacon, they'll, I don't know, melt or catch fire or whatever, (laughs) just explode. So they made her eat this slice of pizza. And Glenna did it and it was fine, but it was just this ugly, ugly, ugly atmosphere. And the far right is just an incredibly misogynistic place to begin with. Now it was time to shift to Charlottesville and hear exactly what Vegas saw and experienced on the ground that very deadly weekend. He was embedded as a journalist with the alt-right, and he had a really unique perspective on the infighting that occurred among the alt-right and the way in which the infamous Tiki Torch March that occurred at the University of Virginia on Friday night, just before the Unite the Right rally on Saturday, set things up for a truly disastrous next day. I was driving in on the day of the 11th, and one of the things that became clear To preface it, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville was never about unity on the far right. It was about getting a part of that spotlight. Mm -hmm. As soon as it became clear that Charlottesville was going to be a big thing, every little wannabe Fuhrer on the far right wanted a piece of the action. So they all wanted to show up. And there was a ton of bickering happening back and forth about who would get speaking slots. You know, if that guy's going to be there, I don't want to be there and, and all this back and forth. So 
uh, as I was driving in, that's when they started talking about the Tiki March. They hadn't really planned it in any large degree. And Matthew Heimbach, uh, as soon as I found out about it, I called him and like, are you, are you guys going to go to this Tiki March? And he said, no, it's a dumb idea. Richard Spencer is going to get us all arrested. We don't have permits for that. I think that really sowed the seeds of a lot of the bad stuff that happened the next day because part of that contributed to Matthew Heimbach's Traditionalist Workers' Party, the League of the South, the Hammerskins, that faction of the alt-right who came to call themselves the hard right decided not to march in with Spencer and Kessler. They decided that we're going to come in from our own starting point. On Saturday morning. On the Saturday. Because of what happened the prior night. Yeah. And there's very little love lost between these factions anyway. So when we met them in a parking lot on the Saturday morning, Matthew said, we've tried to reach the police so they can give us a rallying point, so they can tell us where to go and a route to the park. We haven't been able to make that happen. So we're just going to park in this parking structure and go. Which is weird because whenever you go to any of these rallies, and I've been to quite a few of them now, there's always a very set police tells them where to go. And there's just cops all over the place to make sure that counter protesters and protesters never get to meet face to face. I was taken aback in the garage because I saw how amped up they were. Notably, the Hammerskins. The Hammerskins have no politics besides punching whatever's right in front of them. The first thing I noticed is there wasn't many police officers around. And the second thing I noticed is that there's Antifa in the street of, ahead of us where the park is. And, I'm, and I remember thinking, huh, this is extremely unexpected and this is not going to end well. But then somehow the crowd parted and they got into the park and it felt a bit more conventional because the police were there and they'd cordoned off two areas within the park. Just a lot of yelling and shouting over the heads of police, you know. And then all of a sudden, cops were gone. They just weren't there. And there was that moment. And I think both sides were like, where did the police go? And then all hell broke loose. I mean, because it's so interesting to me because these things have happened so many times before and they've gone fine. So to me, it was always such a big question that this seems unnecessary. There is a recipe to this. There's almost a manual that other towns have used. And this is why we tried so hard to get it moved to McIntyre Park, which had these two softball fields where they could have been separated. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of inertia and resistance to implementing a new plan and a mandate for having the the rally happened in this other place, but then there was also a legal challenge because Jason Kessler and the Virginia ACLU wanted the rally to happen next to the Lee statue, the statue of Robert E. Yeah. Lee, which is right downtown where you have this very dense area with lots of points of entry and an exit that created all the problems that you saw. And we lost that lawsuit the eve of the rally right after the, the Tiki march happened. But one of the threats happening all the way through that was even if we had won and a judge had said, yes, you, city of Charlottesville, can have the rally at McIntyre Park, which is two miles away where there's softball fields instead of right downtown. Jason Kessler, he was saying, and he was encouraging all of the attendees to defy that order. So they would have basically engaged right. in civil disobedience, come downtown anyway. I think there's a lot of bravado. And I think, you know, it's difficult to say what they would have done. But Far-right extremists are normally pretty deferential toward police. Interesting. Which is one of the smart moves they do as well. You know, when, when they come in, they'll oftentimes you'll see them go over and, and say hi to the police and introduce themselves and like thank them for their service, uh, which is all a 
part of their plan to sort of get along with law enforcement. So I don't know. They're also pretty cowardly, particularly the leadership like Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer has very little appetite for being arrested. So all that says to me that the institutions of government actually could have a a fair amount of sway over them in reducing this threat. So court rulings, police plans, communication, controlling. You can have some more control over the danger they pose. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are ways of sort of deplatforming or reducing their impact. But what you often see is that uh, municipalities aren't aware of all the laws. The Nazis, the far right, are oftentimes very aware of the laws that impact what they do. So, you know, there's been so many instances of Richard Spencer announcing that he's going to go to some university and talk. The university have said, stupidly, have said no because it's a public safety risk, which is exactly what Richard Spencer wants because he knows that he's going to win that lawsuit. So one of the smarter things I've heard is, of course, the lawsuit that Mary uh, McCord brought and the ACLU saying that you guys are a militia and you can't be an organized armed militia. You can be there and you can be armed, but you cannot be armed in any kind of collaborative, organized way. I wanted to ask Vegas about his perspective on the far-left movement who clashed with the alt-right in Charlottesville and who have elsewhere. This is the movement that calls themselves Antifa after the anti-fascist activists who fought in Europe in the 1930s. You might have seen them in footage of conflicts in Portland or Berkeley in addition to Charlottesville. They believe violence is a legitimate response to neo-Nazis and they often clash with law enforcement. They sometimes wear masks to hide their identity. They sometimes carry weapons. People have very polarized views of them and some people think they are defending us from neo-Nazis, others think they are feeding into a cycle of violence. So my thoughts on Antifa have evolved. First of all, I don't really believe in meeting violence with violence. I don't think any racist ever had the racism beaten out of them. But then Antifa, of course, is so much more. Antifa isn't and shouldn't be defined by the black bloc, by the, the, by the people on the front lines. I think Antifa helped the far right in terms of when they punched Richard Spencer. That was a that was a huge moment for the far right, and it really brought them together in a mm-hmm. real sense. But I think the organizational work, the doxing, and the detective work that Antifa have done since has been hugely valuable in driving the far right back underground. So while I don't I don't see the efficacy of of meeting violence with violence. I do see them as an important tool when it comes to organizing a cohesive counter-protest. They get people involved. And I think us in the media have done them a disservice. We've been focused on the 15 neo-Nazis in front of us rather than the 5,000 people behind us who organize and who come out and, and protest. Do you have any advice for the person who might meet and want to confront a member of the alt-right? Should they confront them? Should they ignore them? After all the research observation you've done. I've seen some amazing confrontations. I've seen uh, young women of color just like take down Richard Spencer. 
they're scared, it's particularly women and women of color, because they just fear them. They're a threat to them. But I'm not going to advise a person to go over to a Nazi and start an argument that can end in a very, very, very bad way. But on a larger societal scale, I think confrontation is the only way forward, which is why I don't agree with universities banning these people. The main reason to go to college is to become offended and pissed off and educated and organized. You need to know about all the awful stuff in the world so you can arm yourself. Like I consider Richard Spencer an inoculation. It's a little dose of of racism so you know what racism is and you know how to fight it. With the conviction for murder of James Alex Fields, the young neo-Nazi who drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring 19 others, and the apparent retreat from many public activities by Richard Spencer, the founder of the term alt-right, many have speculated that with Unite the Right, the alt-right self-destructed and that they have essentially been defeated. I wanted to ask Vegas his take on this. Have they self-destructed or are they regrouping? They're regrouping. Political extremism will have an outlet no matter what. Right now they've gone underground and the benefits, so to speak, in having them march and rally in a safe and peaceful way is that maybe it's not coming out in in violence. Like right now, the groups are retrenching into more violent factions. You have groups like Adam Waffen SS, you have groups that Rise Above Movement, which are extremely scary terrorist organizations. If they don't have a political outlet, they will find another outlet. So I think that's also why we need to find a balance in our society that allows people who have abhorrent opinions. The beauty of the First Amendment is that it serves as a safety valve. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys have the right to say these things and they're awful and they're offensive, but at least they they say them and that's where their extremism gets an outlet. Coming from Europe, do you have a different... I mean, in Europe, there is not the right in many countries to say these things. So there's not that safety valve. Can you contrast the where European countries end up with regard to their radicalized populations compared with the United States? I would argue for sort of anti-racism laws all day long if Germany didn't have any racists. But it just so happens they do. They have laws that say you can't, you know, you can't say Nazi or Holocaust denying things. But we still have a ton of racists and extremists in Germany. Norway has a racism clause to our freedom of speech constitution. But we still have racists. So you can't legislate this thing away. If you try to ban racist speech, people are still going to be racist. So the only solution is that you need to level the playing field of discourse. Rather than trying to protect minorities from hearing offensive things, you need to help them to become a part of the discourse. You need to give them a stronger voice in societal discourse. And I think that's the solution. We just need to help people up. Um, We talk a lot about alliances and the power of allyship in addressing extremism. Have you seen successful examples of this or instances where solidarity among different groups has provided some better way of addressing extremism? So the point I like to make about Charlottesville was as awful and horrendous and traumatizing and scarring that day was, Charlottesville was also the rock upon which that wave of white supremacy in America broke. 
you know, it sent these Nazis scurrying back into the woodwork because things became very public and very awful for them. They got sued, they got doxxed, all kinds of things. So, and it really showed the opposition, the left, the value of organizing. And I think since then, we've seen these big, massive counter-protests that dwarf whatever's in front of them. And I think that's really great. We're seeing it in Portland. We're seeing it all over. And it's not just Antifa. It's everything from DSA local chapters, labor unions, church groups, community groups, LGBTQ groups. I mean, there really has been an amazing coming together over the last year or so. And I think that's been underreported. And it's great. It's amazing. So Vegas, are you hopeful about the ability of democracy to overcome this native threat? Nope. I, well, mm. I think America, your system of government is perfect for creating this kind of toxic environment. I'm no fan of two-party systems. I'm no fan of presidential systems because it's a winner-take-all kind of system. It doesn't encourage inclusivity. It makes people feel left out. Looking at what's going on, reading the news, things are, you know, the battlefronts are just hardening. So I don't see how we're getting out of it. There's so many good people in this country and there's so many people wanting to do what's right. But white supremacy is endemic all over this country. And we need a reckoning. We need to say that America was founded on the notion of white supremacy, that the threat of white supremacy isn't Richard Spencer or the Klan. It's voter ID laws, it's health care, it's policing, it's the prison system, it's gentrification, it's everything. And until we ha have that reckoning that we're all part of the problem, then I don't see how we're going to move past it. Vegas Tainold is a journalist and the author of Everything You Love Will Burn, The Rebirth of White Nationalism in America. You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti-Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation, the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBC Universal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzik. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear, and Elliot composed and produced the musical Interludes and the closing music. I'm Mike Signer. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.